Hey folks, Preet here. A few weeks ago, we brought you a special episode of a new podcast we're starting for members of Cafe Insider. It's called Cyberspace, and it's hosted by my friend, a renowned cyber and national security expert, John Carlin. Today, I'm excited to announce the official launch of the podcast. John led the Justice Department's National Security Division under President Obama, and prior to that, served as Chief of Staff to then-FBI Director Robert Mueller. Every other Friday, he'll be exploring issues at the intersection of technology, policy, and law with some of the most thoughtful and influential leaders who've made an impact in the world of cyber. What follows now is my conversation with John. He joined me to preview his podcast and give us a broad outline of the cyber threat and the challenges created by ever-evolving technology. And if you'd like to listen to the first episode of Cyberspace, featuring John's interview with Alex Stamos, you can do so for free. Stamos served as the chief security officer at Facebook during a crucial time, leading the company's investigation into Russia's manipulation of the 2016 election. To listen for free, head to cafe.com slash cyber, and we'll send you a link. That's cafe.com slash cyber. And now here's my conversation with John Carlin. John Carlin, welcome back to the show. Yeah, it's great to be back. So we had you on about a year and a half ago. Not much has happened since then, I think. No, it's pretty much the same. A very static, very static country (laughs) in in every respect. But one reason we had you on was to talk about your book, Dawn of the Code War. You're not working on a second book, are you? No, I think I might be one and done. We'll see. No, you'll do others, but you're going to be doing this podcast. So I wanted to ask you why you've you've agreed to do this podcast, because I think it's very important. One theory I have is um, you saw that our friend and your predecessor at NSD, Lisa Monaco, was doing a podcast and you had some FOMO. (laughs) <laughs> is that is that fair? Never never discount envy, <laughs> but also you're uh, you're a persuasive guy, Preet. <laughs> On a scale of one to ten, what do you think the average person in the public's understanding of the threat of cyber and the danger of cyber and the issues relating to cyber are? Three, but you know I'll complicate that answer a little bit with I think that there's a general sense of discomfort or fear about it that's probably accurate. And so maybe that'll that'll rank a lot higher. But then specifically about you know the different where we are right now, what bad guys have already done to us, that I think is pretty low. And that's not just for the average you know person, uh, grandma, person you're hanging out with at a bar. That is also I'm finding true at at some of the highest levels of corporate America. Well, what about lawmakers? I mean, I made this point a lot. I was having this conversation with my daughter the other day about you know some hearings. And you see both senators and members of the House not understanding the basics of technology, and they're the ones making laws about this stuff. What's, if, if you say the average person is at a three, where would you say, you don't have to name names, where would you say the average lawmaker is? Well, I'll just say, you know, I've had a few law, I, I, I do this project for the Aspen Institute on cybersecurity, and, and you've identified what we've identified as one of the top problems. And some of the members of our group are sitting members of, of Congress, and they have described it you know, down near a zero or a one, which in some ways, you know, makes sense if you think about the average age of a senator or house member and the speed with which technology has has changed. I mean, one of our big initiatives, one of the reasons to do a podcast is just at, at the heart of this, I think sometimes it's a translation issue. You know, we've suddenly we're relying on a technology and the people who understand it best speak a different language, you know, speak geek that they understand, but don't speak <laughs> policy. And then the policy folks don't speak geek. And so a lot of the initiatives that we've tried to start are just teach, trying to teach each other our respective languages. So on the podcast, are you going to speak policy, technology, 
geek <laughs> or or how about how about English? We're gonna go. We're gonna try to go with English. Good. Okay. <laughs> Translation. <All right. laughs> but we'll try to bring on guests you know, who who range. Our our first guest was really someone who's a policy expert and a sitting government official who had my prior job and Lisa's prior Lisa Monaco's prior job as Assistant Attorney General for National Security. So he's this sitting government official, and his background's more policy. But he's finding that the issues he's facing are right at the at the center of this technological change of this move to cyber. So we'll have people like that who are real policy experts. And then we'll also have, uh, you know, Alex Stamos is going to be an upcoming guest who is a former chief information security officer at both Yahoo and then Facebook and lived through some of the most serious attacks by Russian and other actors. And he's really a technologist, but he's someone who's good at speaking in policy. So we're going to try to bring in both voices. What do you think are the most important issues that are going to be a big deal in the news and in people's lives in the coming months and years? Well, I'll tell you one that we predicted when I think I was last on with you. So uh, a year and a half ago, despite everything changing, the threats haven't changed. It's the magnitude has increased. We saw five years ago at this point, the Syrian Electronic Army, so a group of, of uh, individuals associated with the Syrian state who supported the Assad regime. And they did what is still, I think, the, the single most damaging just in terms of dollars attack. And it was simple and easy to do. They took over the Twitter account of the Associated Press to pretend that there was a terrorist attack in the Obama White House. And they watched the stock market plunge, you know, billions and billions of dollars. So we talked about that then as something to worry about heading into the election, as it seems like we're more, not less reliant on getting information through Twitter. Recently, when uh, numerous public personalities, Twitter accounts were taken over. And luckily in that case, it was a relatively low rent bad guy scheme where what they were trying to do is convince people to give them Bitcoin, you know, to, to gain digital currency. But that same scheme, if you did that right before our election and the news media fell for it, you would have people wondering about the legitimacy of the election. So one issue I think is going to be, how do we get news? How do we get in information? And how can it be manipulated in this age? What do we do to protect ourselves? There's one thing we've learned repeatedly in this space is that everyone is watching. So even if the intent of this particular actor really was a, a low-rent scheme to make a buck, when people see how easily it worked and use their imaginations, then actors with much more nefarious intent, terrorists, nation states, are taking notes, and we need to prepare ourselves for a more sophisticated use. And we've, seen, we've learned that lesson time and again the hard way. I hope we learn it this time and protect ourselves before we see the worst use. So who needs who needs protection the most? Who's who's farther behind than others to make sure, at least with respect to an election, you don't have some bad event? Well, one, you know, education effort I know we've been doing is with the news media and reporters so that they learn to take a breath, you know, take a breath uh, in terms of reporting out what they get through Twitter and the possibility of it being manipulated. And not just Twitter, which were, uh, but other social media as well. But in addition to that, I think it's something that state election officials need to plan for. And I know Homeland Security needs to plan for. So what if the threat that we face during the election is not a disruption of actual vote count or 
wiping people from the re- registration, both things that we can and should worry about. But instead, it's just manipulating media to tell people to, you know, misinformation about how to vote, for instance. So I think the st- uh, state and local officials, reporters, and federal officials need to be quite aware of the way bad guys could, could manipulate. Is interference with the election your topmost concern at the moment? You know, it's hard in this space to pick a top because there's a lot of Because they're all terrible. <laughs> there's there's I, so many doomsday scenarios. There are, and they all flow from the same fundamental change, right? Which is we moved almost everything we value from books and papers, from analog to digital over a very short period of time. And we did it further and faster than any other country in the world. So that goes to our water supply, our electric grid, the way we get our news media, everything now that is, you know, I, I'm looking at with uh, COVID occurring, everyone's working from home. You can't work if your systems get disrupted. Yeah. And we're seeing So how much that. has that increased? How much has COVID increased our risk? I'm seeing it. So in my, in my private practice now, which helping uh, companies who are the victim of cyber attacks, I'm seeing an increase in ransomware in particular. So these are schemes that encrypt, they lock up your computers, you can't use them unless you pay the bad guy a fee. And what the bad guys have realized is that in an age of COVID, people are going to pay because even a minor disruption and no matter what your business is, everyone's working from home right now and dependent on on being able to use their networks and systems. So it's spiking. And again, you know, going back to our earlier example, those are groups who you can pay by and large because what they're trying to do is to make a buck. But if you think about that type of vulnerability on scale, if someone really wanted to deliver a shock to the American economy at a time we're already dealing with a lot of shocks, you see that with the prevalence of ransomware attacks, if a bad guy locked up those systems and there's no amount that you could pay, they could really cause damage. Um, I want to talk about your background a little bit. You've had a lot of different jobs, just like Lisa Monaco and Ken Weinstein. But I want to ask you, your, your interest in and focus on cyber, how that evolved over time. So how much different is your view and your attention to cyber comparatively between the time you served, for example, as chief of staff to Robert Mueller, then FBI director, and say your last year in government in the Obama administration? Yeah, so I'd say, so prior to serving uh, Mueller as chief of staff, when he was, you know, back in the good old days when he was relatively anonymous and just director of the FBI, I had coordinated nationally the computer hacking and intellectual property criminal cases. So I had become uh, somewhat of a specialist in this area. And when I went over- Chips, yeah. Chips. <laughs> he's responsible for that name. I think he told you before. Because he, you know, he doesn't watch TV. He had no idea that they were a bunch of Who's like, responsible? Robert Mueller? Robert Mueller, yeah. It's short. When he was the US attorney in California, he started the first chips unit there to do deal with high-tech crime. And they named it the computer hacking and intellectual property section. And it was just a section in that one US attorney's office. And then he brought that name with him. When he came back, yeah, I never to loved that. Justice. I never loved that name. Yeah, well, he yeah, didn't we know had, about the short shorts too. and sunglasses <laughs> and the whole thing, and so well, I you're talking about the TV show. Like, I don't. Yeah. Bear in mind that many of our listeners don't know what the hell you're talking about either. They're like <laughs> I guess potato chips, true. tortilla chips. What kind, what kind of chips? Yeah, California Highway Patrol. Big big right? show. Chips was yeah. the show. Yeah. 
Look, I, I know you watch that show religiously, John. <laughs> I watched the show some. I wasn't allowed to watch TV, but it was one of the shows I snuck. And they just did a remake that was is really a terrible movie. Uh, I, I got to say, but so maybe it's more uh, people have heard of it because of the remake. No negative. We don't do negative. We don't do negative promotions here. John. <laughs> so yeah. So, so, yeah, so, over, yeah. so how much? So, so yeah. between then and 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 recently, how much bigger of a deal has this become? I think what it is it's a lot of what we foretold has now come come to pass. So for a while, you know, everyone was saying it's a matter of time before a nation state attacks the, the United States through cyber means. And now we've had things like the North Korean attack on Sony Motion Pictures, going back to your don't give negative reviews because they, they essentially were giving a big negative review to a movie they didn't like the interview. You've had Russia... We talked about the fact that there was the possibility of meddling in election, but now we've seen it happen and on scale and not just once. We saw them attempt to do the same thing in the 2018 elections, and we know they're trying to do it again. We've seen China steal intellectual property on a scope and scale that's simply unimagined in history that former director of the National Security Agency called the largest transfer of wealth in human history, uh, Keith Alexander, and I think he's right. And we've seen that affect the world's geopolitics. So I think what we're seeing is a lot of what had been predicted has already come true. And unfortunately, since then, I think there has been increased investment in security, new positions created, new uh, the government has changed in new policies. But at the same time, we've also doubled down on, on increasing our reliance on that technology without fixing the underlying vulnerabilities. So I'm not sure we more, we're more safe than we were before. You know, that, that quote from Keith Alexander, I used to also invoke regularly when I was in office, the greatest transfer of wealth in human history. But a lot, and a lot of that wealth is being transferred where? To China, right? Based on theft of intellectual property. So I want to ask you about China for a second. I was recently... I was recently talking to some folks who said something that made my hair stand on end, and it was the question of what is going to happen with the relationship between the United States and China and how big a threat China is, much more so than Russia. And the question was, are we inevitably headed towards armed conflict with China, military conflict with China? And the consensus was, no, not in the conventional sense. That seems unlikely. But if you're including cyber and whatever cyber war means, they thought there was a very high likelihood of that inevitability. Do you agree with that? And what would that look like? I agree with it. And I, but I do think it's something that's, that we can positively impact. And it's a good reason to, to talk about it now. And so it's, and part of that is, I think China and, and the US have a vested interest in having some norms, some rules of the road on how you use these weapons that are incredibly powerful. And in order to set those rules of the road, you need to, to create clear norms, like things that are okay and are not. What are the red lines? Make sure that there's not confusion. And then make sure that your deterrence is credible. So with China right now has great capability to disrupt inside the U.S. And we have a great capability to, to disrupt their systems as well. I think what, what's keeping it more in the, in the realm of espionage and trade secret theft rather than actually disrupting systems that we rely on is deterrence and that understanding of where red lines. One of the concerted efforts you saw in the Obama administration that 
I think has fallen off somewhat, not because there are great cases being brought by the law enforcement and intelligence professionals, but there hasn't been consistency at the top in terms of the messaging to China on what's most important. But one of the changes you saw attempted to be made in the Obama administration is to say, hey, trade secret theft, when you're targeting private companies, we're putting as a, as a norm, we're saying that is one of our, our red lines, that you can't use your cyber capability instead of you know investing in research and development to just steal intellectual property. And then we did see a change of behavior when that breakthrough occurred with President Obama and President she, it was, it was somewhat um, remarkable. I think we've fallen off that a little bit because it's so conflated with all the other U.S.-China trade issues that there's not a clear message on, you know, what's different from trade and really a national security issue. Putting China aside, what are some of the other countries that you think are dangerous in this sphere that you'll be talking about on the pod? Yeah, top four are China, which we've talked about, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. And that's been fairly consistent in terms of the assessment of the intelligent community for nearly a decade now. You know, you and I discussed this once at a panel where I think I was moderating. And no, you were at the same conference. I don't think we we're on, on a panel together. And I remember asking someone, this is not long after the Sony hack that was perpetrated by the government of North Korea. Should we be surprised that North Korea is in the top four, given that, as I understand it, you know, they have all the processing power in that country, I'm exaggerating, but all the processing power of my laptop. I mean, isn't it, isn't it otherwise digitally very behind as a country? No, I think that's, that's fair. And it's one thing when, when, when North Korea did do the attack, for instance, on Sony motion pictures, some people said, well, why don't you attack them back through cyber means? And you know, always uh, think that the, the old maxim, you want to attack your, your enemy where you are strong and they are weak. And at that time, we were very digitally reliant, but you could knock all of North Korea offline and they had fewer IP or internet protocol addresses than an average company does. So it wouldn't mean much to knock them all offline, to your point. Right, so being being a little bit behind digitally is in some ways a measure of protection currently. That's right. And and they're also, um, so the way that they're conducting most of their attacks are not from folks inside of North Korea. What they're doing as they do with their their schemes to get uh, develop their weapons of mass destruction. They have a network of agents outside of North Korea, and they use infrastructure, you know, broadband and computers outside of North Korea to conduct their attacks. And it is a major part of their national security strategy right now because when you look at our policy, which is to try to deprive currency from the regime in order to change policy through sanctions— what they've decided is, okay, well, they may try to deprive us of legitimate banking. We are going to become the world's largest bank robber and use our cyber capability to do things like wire transfer schemes where a bank thinks it's transferring to one place, but they change the uh, currency. And we see North Korea doing that all the time now. They also do the ransomware type scheme we discussed before. And so they're extorting companies to get payment. And they're really, it's, it's not tied to any particular political goal. They're just doing it to raise money. Was, was that the Sony hack case that you mentioned perpetrated by North Korea? Was that the most interesting case you worked on when you were in government in this area? Um, sadly, for uh, I'd say there's a couple in each country has a as a case that I found particularly interesting of the of the four we discussed. So you have that that uh, North Korean attack on Sony, and then you have a Russian blended threat attack on Yahoo, where they took a guy who's 
a crook, like a legit crook. And so no nation state motive on his part. And he would do things like hack and change the Yahoo search engine. So when you search for anything, you got redirected to an erectile dysfunction site. And then he just took a part <laughs> of the cut. Yeah, not a national security emergency. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he'd take, uh, take a buck. But then you saw Russian operatives, and it, it was the same unit that we relied upon for cooperation with Russia. So he was one of our most wanted criminals. We went through the FBI to say, hey, can you help us arrest him? Just like we've cooperated on other cases like child porn or terrorism. This has nothing to do with national security. And instead of helping us arrest him, they signed him up as an intelligence asset. And then they used his same type of crazy criminal schemes and allowed him to make a buck on them. But while he had access and stole things like literally hundreds of millions of email addresses in order to do a math spam scheme, they used that same information for intelligence purposes, for things like surveillance before Ukraine. So that was a, that was a fascinating case as well. And then there was an Iranian attack on our financial sector where they essentially- Well, I remember that yeah, case. Yeah, that's- uh, uh, <laughs> We did that, we worked on that together. Exactly. Um, and then, and you remember the- in addition to the attack on the financial sector, which essentially they made uh, hundreds of thousands of compromised computers into a, a cyber weapon of mass destruction, they also hacked the Bowman Dam in Rye, New York. I don't know if we've ever talked about it. What's your theory as to why they hit the Bowman Dam? Um, I don't have one other than it seemed like it was an easier thing to do. And they were trying their hand. I mean, I'm, I don't mean to be a sort of dry run theorist like we talked about at the beginning with the Twitter hack, but you know, I, I think people... If you're if you're a general criminal and you're going through a neighborhood and you're engaging in one kind of crime, you know, robbing people's houses, and you think, oh, maybe there's a car in the driveway, maybe I should think about that, and you kind of take a shot. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I've had, I've had that weather uh, theory uh, possibly to dry run and just to, to fill people in who aren't tracking on it. So this was part of the same Iranian group that attacked our financial sector to to um, try to knock online banking offline. So as a consumer, you couldn't reach your bank. They also hacked into this dam in in Westchester, um, in Rye, New York, and they accessed the sluice control system so they'd be able to open and shut the dam and flood the surrounding area. Now, as it so happens, the dam was down for maintenance, so it wasn't working, but I think I remember Preet and I agreeing at the time that our crumbling infrastructure should not be our first line of of cyber defense, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, you know, it's not the biggest dam. So there was a lot of questions about why would they hit that particular dam? And I've always... Uh, one theory uh, is that there was a there is another Bowman Dam that is of significant size, and because they're they don't know America very well and they're operating offshore, that they hit the wrong Bowman Dam. But I uh, we never fully had an answer as to, as to why they wanted control there. No, we didn't. Final question before I let you go: Who's going to play you in the movie? <laughs> the uh, the thing about okay, going back to the problem. <laughs> you, you clearly have an. Clearly, you've thought about this and you have an answer. No, 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 no. But the clearly the. <laughs> although I will say, my uh, nickname growing up for a while was Ferris because of a movie that your listeners will also not probably be that familiar with anymore. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and Matthew Broderick was this big hacker guy yeah, that did war that. games uh, at the time, which uh, is still a great I movie. I see, right? <laughs> and influenced Ronald Reagan's Oh my Reagan's god, that's like back policy. from 1983. Hello. Are you still playing a game? Of course. I should reach DEFCON 1 and launch my missiles in 28 hours. Would you like to see some projected kill ratios? 
69% of the housing destroyed. 72 million people dead. Is this a game or is it real? What's the difference? Oh, wow. That was one of the, it's a big moment for cyber uh, policy, you know, historians because. And cyber fiction. Ronald Reagan, seeing that movie, asked his team, hey, could this happen? And then the answer turned out to be yes. And it was the first big initiative <laughs> on cyber. So I don't know if you knew that, but that, that was when they first, the White I House first yeah, drove it. So fiction can make a difference. But that's a nice note to end on because that's a kind, the kind of thing that you're going to be talking about on the Cyberspace Podcast. I'm very excited about this, John. I think for a long time, there's a lot of confusion and there are a lot of myths around the cyber threat. And a lot of people think, you know, it seems too complicated. It's something for you know, the IT people to care about, and, and I don't really understand it. And that's just that's just not true. There's a lot of common sense things that, that ordinary people can learn about it and people who need to be able to protect their companies and their homes and their livelihoods and their bank accounts. So I consider what you're about to do to be a real great public service. So, so thanks for doing it. I'm glad we're working together again. Really looking forward to the opportunity. Thanks, Preet. I hope my conversation with John Carlin has piqued your interest in the fascinating world of cyber. As mentioned, for the first episode of Cyberspace, John speaks with Alex Stamos. Prior to serving as Facebook's chief security officer during Russia's assault on our democracy, Stamos held that role at Yahoo when the company experienced a series of cyber attacks from nation states, resulting in the breach of some billion user accounts. Stamos is now helping Zoom with its cybersecurity challenges exacerbated by the company's exponential growth during the pandemic. It's a compelling discussion, and I hope you'll check it out. You can do so for free by heading to cafe.com slash cyber to sign up, and we'll send you a link to listen. Again, that's cafe.com slash cyber. <laughs>